Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 200, we are beginning The Books of Babel by Josiah Bancroft, starting with the first half of Senlin Ascends. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me once again is Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers, guys. <laughs> Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. Today, we are covering through the end of Chapter 10 in Part 2 of Senlin Ascends. The book opens with our main character, Thomas Senlin, approaching the destination of his honeymoon, along with his new bride, Maria. They're heading for an extended trip at the Tower of Babel, but this isn't the biblical tower. Rather, this is a fantasy world, and the tower is a monumental construction of human genius, a famous travel destination, and an almost mystical symbol in the world. After their train is blocked by the press of indescribable crowds, Thomas and Maria are forced to continue on foot. In the market that surrounds the foot of the tower, they are separated, and Thomas must continue onward, hoping to reunite with her on the third level, or ringdom, of the tower. Outside, he meets a man named Adam, who helps guide him through the tunnel and into the basement of the tower. But Adam robs Thomas and abandons him. After learning a few sharp lessons, Thomas pays the exorbitant fee to gain access to the second ringdom, the parlor. In the parlor, he is forced to join an interactive play, which goes quickly sideways. One of the three other actors in his play murders another and then tries to murder Senlin in turn, along with Edith, the final of the four. They outmaneuver the murderous actor, but are detained by the guards of the parlor. After spending a day hanging in a prison cage over the side of the tower, Thomas is given free passage to the next ringdom. But Edith is punished for failing to abide by the rules of the play. She is branded and cast back down to the basement. Thomas moves on to the third level, the baths. There, he begins his search for Maria in earnest. He makes friends with the perpetually vacationing John Taru, before discovering that the painter Ogier has knowledge of Maria. In exchange for that information, Thomas endeavors to steal Ogier's masterpiece painting back from the commissioner. Though he succeeds in making the swap and escaping with the painting, the guard Kristoff discovers him and only gives him a two-hour head start. With the clock ticking, Thomas discovers that Taru has been made into a hod, an indentured servant for the tower, due to his debts. As Ogier and Thomas hurry to escape the baths before the grace period expires, Ogier promises to tell Thomas what he knows about Maria. <laughs> so, yeah, we we left off at quite a point. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good point to, like, stop, but reset for the next... Yeah, so I've talked about this on previous, like, episodes, but I have found, you know, with a number of books that I separate into, I usually try to go for the end of a chapter as close to 50% through the book as possible. And so often we end up leaving on a, like a big turning point cliffhanger with a right around that 50% point. And I find that fascinating because in my mind, I've always thought about those big turning points generally happening more like two thirds to three quarters of the way through a book. That's kind of what I assumed it was. Yeah. But it's not like I'm paying attention, you know, to what what page the things heat up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it it's uh, it has turned out well for the podcast because, you know, it, it allows for fun discussions and 
I know for me personally, it very often means that I'm excited to get back to reading as soon as, you know, I finish recording an episode, uh, especially for a book like this that I have never read before. And I have. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I got partway through last time. Yeah. Not quite to where we leave off here. I have no idea who recommended it. I was talking to somebody about books. Yeah. Yeah, I know for me, this book was recommended uh, by a lot of different people in a lot of different places. Um, often with the uh, added recommendation of, you know, I like Gene Wolfe. I'll probably like this. You know, uh, I see that often where people say, oh, if you like the Book of the New Sun, have you read the Books of Babel? And and so going straight into style off of that, I think I went into this with a different expectation because of the Gene Wolfe comparisons. Um, now, like, just to put this out there, I did not expect Josiah Bancroft to write Gene Wolfe level prose. Um, nobody does. Gene Wolfe is Gene Wolfe. But I did expect this story to feel more like a, a puzzle uh, or to have an unreliable narrator. And neither of those are really the experience I'm getting. However, where this really does feel like Gene Wolfe, Book of the New Sun in particular, and even more specifically, The Shadow of the Torturer, it's the exploration of the setting. It's, you know, in Shadow of the Torturer, when Severian is going off into the city, not only is the main character exploring these new locations, but it's also our first real look at what this world is like through that character's lens. And that's very much the case here. It's, a, it's an alien setting. It has the same weight of mythology and history behind it that Severian moving through Nessus does in Shadow of the Torturer. Ooh, I don't know if it can hit that level. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about like, this isn't, you know... You said the same weight. I, I do think it's about the weight. It's not necessarily about the, you know, literally millions of years of history, but there is... Um, because Bancroft made the choice to put it in the Tower of Babel and to specifically uh, have characters show up who have biblical or religious names. You know, he brings in the, the weight of that knowledge that we carry as readers. And what Wolf does is he, he has the whole weight of the world and the history there and then he's a little more subtle with his names where, yes, all the human beings in the Book of the New Sun are named after Roman Catholic saints, but many of them are obscure saints that most people will have no idea, you know, where those names are coming from. Not uh, you. People, people, not you, like me. I mean, e even for myself, I didn't know that they were all named after saints. There were definitely oh. some characters where I was like, oh, I recognize that name. Um, but it wasn't until after I had read the book of the new sun and was, you know, looking up anyway. Uh, but with, with this, 
it's overt. He is leaning on the fact that his readers will automatically be thinking of the Bible because of the Tower of Babel. And the fact that, you know, other than our first two characters, um, whose names, by the way, are Christian, Maria clearly comes from Mary, and Thomas, there are many St. Thomases, including mm. one in, you know, one of Jesus's apostles. Um, the very first person they meet who is given a name is Adam. And that is, in and of itself, you know, that carries weight. You think, okay, I already have the biblical context of the Tower of Babel, and now here, the first person we meet is named Adam. And that brings expectations with it. And I really enjoyed how he subverted my expectation. I thought Adam was going to end up being a, you know, a companion throughout the story. And instead he robs, betrays, and abandons Thomas right away. And halfway through the book, we have not seen Adam again, and I doubt we will. Um, and, and that continues as a theme where he moves into, Thomas moves into a new area, a new setting, um, and acquires an erstwhile companion, and then immediately moves on. And, and I'm not going to say he abandons them necessarily, but he, he is pulled away from them, often through no choice of his own, um, where for one reason or another, they cannot continue. Adam, even if Adam hadn't betrayed him, he had the brand. He couldn't go to the parlor. From the parlor, Edith is expelled. Uh, when we move up to the baths, maybe John Taru uh, is turned into a hod. You know, like so he acquires his companions, and now the next companion of his is going to be Ogier. Clearly, they're escaping together or working to escape together. Mm, I don't know if they are. I think Ogier is just okay. By the way, in the in the audio, they Ogier. Whatever. I have no idea how it's spelled because... It's spelled just like Ogier in the Wheel of Time. Ugh. See, I don't want to do Ogier. I don't want to say Ogier because it's it's a very specific thing to me. Yeah. And anyways, I don't think Ogier is going with him. I think Ogier has what he wants. And he's good to go. He's mm. going to tell him. He may or may oh. not tell the truth, but he's going to tell him and send him on his way. Um, which, but maybe, so going back to your whole expectation setup, I did not have that. Mm -hmm. So yes, yes, I know Tower of Babel. Yep. Well, that was set for me for about five minutes where I was thinking Bible, biblical. Okay. Um, and then maybe the tone of it how he's a teacher and this is, you know, holds a different kind of significance, a historical one in the way that he talks about it to his students. Okay. It took off that biblical expectation for me. I thought of it as more of like, I don't know, maybe in this world, historical reference or whatever they decided to name it after you know but it's 
I wasn't thinking, oh, Adam. Hmm. There we go, Bible again. I was thinking, everybody's out to get you. This is like his environment is so hostile. Don't trust him. Don't trust anybody. And and even the guidebook is is telling us at the beginning of each chapter. Yeah, so you you were just reading the story and not like consciously engaging with the text from like a, a real world analytical perspective. Yeah. And I really didn't see the similarities other than that. It's a tower. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it has the, the same sense of the whole world has come together to build this. There's such an, an unbelievable array of, you know, diversity, people coming from all over, from all directions. Yeah, yeah, I guess I saw it as a pilgrimage, but... But... Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that has stuck with me is that it's really hard to um, divorce the theme of the biblical Tower of Babel story you know, the, the moral of that is, you know, pride is, is your downfall. Um, and, and so I actively read this book with that idea of pride in mind, how, you know, how the characters around Thomas, you know, deal with pride and how Thomas himself lacks pride. No, he doesn't. Uh, I think he does. Uh, he he has a certain um, a certain very small pride in no, his. No, it's not small. It's big. Well, this is this is getting into character, but okay, okay. we'll. Do you want we'll, me to save it for a minute? Yeah, yeah. Um, but so this theme of pride, I'm always looking for in in the book. But beyond that, again. Uh, this is a tower levels and I'm looking for things that I see in other classic texts like Dante's Inferno and Purgatorio. Okay. The way that I'm seeing it is like, this is the fall of man. And this is where everybody goes to live out whatever sin they're going to go for. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was getting with, with the Inferno and the Purgatorio where each level, there's like a different flaw. It's presented in a way of like, you know, as a virtue. And then as Thomas experiences it, he realizes that this virtue is not a virtue after all. And it is people losing themselves in a vice. I guess I wasn't looking at it through his eyes at all. I'm looking at it through the guidebook, what the guidebook is telling me and what it's Hmm. pleasantly leaving out or making sound much nicer than it actually is. Right. So I just like, I don't see anything positive coming or anything positive that anybody's been through that's in this place, even at the base of the tower. It's an absolute disaster. Right. Yeah. I I don't think you're supposed to be reading it as positives. 
Thomas he, goes in with he, the expectation of it. Yes. And then he learns. Well, you said you saw it through his eyes of like the virtue of each. I don't think he's thinking virtue after. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the way Josiah Bancroft wrote this is that each of these rings is supposed to have its own like attraction and motif. And then once Thomas himself gets there, we realize we actually get to experience it through him. We realize this is not a, a glorious vacation spot. This is the breakdown of humanity and each level has its own sin or, or vice or whatever. I'm sure. not saying that Thomas is making these, uh, you know, value. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. He's not assigning these values to the levels. Well, maybe he did before he got there, but. No, I, he certainly never mentions it. He doesn't say like, oh, you know, the, the parlor is, is where, you know, this human virtue is expressed. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't actively turn around after experiencing the parlor and say, wow, that was, you know, a descent into hedonism where people get to just like act out whatever they want in the context of these plays. That's so that's not what I'm saying. Like I that is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, but you're you lost the thread. So what I'm saying is. He he saw it as this marvelous place that he was saving up for, uh -huh. that he wanted to make a grand trip to, and that he actively taught his students yes. to appreciate. Yeah. He comes into it with love and, and high expectation. Yeah, of course. That's what I'm saying. Okay. He sees it, you know, completely differently. Y yeah. Sure. I wasn't saying he didn't. Okay. <laughs> I think you misunderstood what I was saying. I think you misunderstood me too. I think we're talking past each other. We are definitely talking past each other. Okay. Where do you want to do a start um, with him? Well, no, I, I have so much more to talk about with style and structure. Um, <laughs> so uh, just from, you know, going to a, a prose level discussion of this, uh, I, I do think, you know, while he's not Gene Wolfe, Bancroft is a good writer. He has a particular flair for physical description. Uh, I love his imagery. He does a great job of painting uh, and, and like really putting you in the setting. Uh, some of the descriptions, especially of the baths, um, you know, when he first reaches that level and we get the description of the sunlight and the contraptions of mirrors sending the light through tunnels from the outside in and then shattering across like essentially, you know, disco balls and things. And the description of the way the light plays on the giant lagoon in the middle and, and everything it's, uh, it was just a really beautiful moment to read and it was written very well. Um, yeah. And, and on the flip side, there are moments that are not beautiful, but are written similarly well, like the, the tunnel into the basement was horrifying, um, but it was vivid in that same way. First time it was this time. I don't know. I was just getting through. Catching yourself up. Yeah. Um, that said, 
there are still things in his, uh, not necessarily word choice, but in, in just how he constructs his sentences that feel inefficient to me. Um, I think he gets unnecessarily wordy at points. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of instances I found that he just didn't use the most economical wording he, he could have. Um, could have been a little more concise. Like I, I, I definitely remember some clunky moments that he, I would just... Like, there was one that I highlighted in particular that it, it was like the third or fourth one that I noticed that pulled me out and I found, I was like, all right, I'm going to highlight this and bring bring up this point. Um, and it's when they're uh, Edith and uh, Thomas are unwittingly being led to the cage prison on the side of the tower. Mm-hmm. And they enter the quote-unquote hospital ward. And, and so we get this line, they passed two carts, the first of which was filled with steaming bowls of porridge, and the second of which held six copper cylinders that were about the size of a milking pail. And that's, that's a, a, you know, a nice, again, paints a good image in your head. But using that were is unnecessary in that sentence. You could just as... Say it again? Instead of what he wrote, which is the second of which held six copper cylinders that were about the size of a milking pail. You don't need that were there. You could just say six copper cylinders, each about the size of a milking pail or about the size of a milking pail. Yeah. Okay. You know, both of those. And I, I, so I think that were feels kind of awkward and, and kind of throws a spoke, a stick in the spokes. It's Um, not as smooth. Yeah. It, 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 messes with the rhythm of the sentence and the flow. So there are things like that that pop up pretty often uh, that I'm like, you know, it could be a little smoother. Gene Wolfe, he is not. Um, But that's not to say that I'm disliking his prose. I I really am enjoying this so far. Uh, He's not bad. He's no Gene Wolfe. Yeah, like he's... But who is? I've read... In the last year, I've read a lot of books that did not live up to what I hoped they would be, um, just on a basic writing level. And this one so far is definitely satisfying me in that regard. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's see, what other notes do I have on Okay, so what do you think of these... Um, the way that he's doing the guidebook, like as an intro with each chapter, or the way that he does flashbacks with her. Uh, that is one of the classroom. things that I have notes on. Yeah. So he uses the guidebook epigraphs uh, in a way that, you know, I expect, right? He, he uses it to give us information about the tower that will be pertinent for the chapter we're about to read thematically or literally honestly it's my favorite part of each chapter the epigraphs yes well clearly i mean earlier you said that you're not reading the book from thomas's perspective you're reading it from the guidebook's perspective which i thought was fascinating i am much more interested in who wrote this guidebook Mm -hmm. and dang they are sassy (laughs) <laughs> like half the stuff that they put in there, obviously they had to be in the tower to write this uh-huh. and their description is never 
apt and they're i think you know they're clearly doing it on purpose and i want to know what their purpose oh, yeah. is and who they are yeah that's really interesting again i will get into that more with character uh but in terms of the structure here where he uses these epigraphs to you know impart wisdom or a thematic tone for the chapter um, and I appreciate that. And, and they provide some world building as well. The flashbacks I don't like as much. Why? Um, he largely uses them for the same purposes as the epigraphs. Yes. And it starts to feel a little redundant. We do get sure. more characterization for Thomas through them. But I, I don't feel like we need to take up all of that space to get that same characterization. They're really only like two flashbacks that stood out to me as being particularly notable for their characterization of both Thomas and Maria. And those are the, the kite and the piano. Mm, I totally disagree. I definitely disagree. In fact, he should have put most of these much earlier in the book because they add the character moments that I needed hmm. to, to be interested in both of them. And honestly, the reason why I stopped reading last time was because I didn't care anymore about either one of them. And I hadn't reached any of these good character moments through the flashbacks. So I didn't feel like I knew them, and I didn't feel like I cared to get to know them. So, uh, I liked Thomas from the get-go. Uh, I think he's a really interesting main character. So I didn't have that problem. And as for Maria, I really like how she started off where we're only getting hints of what she's like and who she is. Because it made me question their relationship and it made me question Thomas and that provides narrative tension to me. Uh, I'm reading through this. Of course, there's the surface level tension of what's Thomas going to do. Is he going to make it up? You know, but, but a lot of that is only a facade of tension. This is a book. We know he's going to make it up the tower. We know he's going to make it to the, know. you know, uh, that's that's how stories go. He he's not just he, going to get stuck in one spot and never progress. He has no, to progress. but he he might progress out and never all the way up, and so we'll see where they find. Well, but again, there's the expectation. It's the books of Babel. He's not going to leave the tower. It's a four book series or five book series. It's, it's all in the tower. Presumably. I had no idea where we were going. We're with this. three levels up of a an either thirty-two or forty-six level tower. I thought it was fifty-two. Oh well, there was a recent chapter, I think, in part two, seven or eight, that um, we get, or maybe it was in nine, even where I think it was Kristoff is like I've talked to people who've been all up and down the tower and they swear that there are 46 levels. But then I've also talked to airmen, airship crewmen, and they say there are only 32. Okay. Um, anyway, the, so, so there, this idea of narrative tension, like, you know, he's going to progress up the tower, but what you don't know is what he's going to find when he gets there. 
And for me, these early chapters didn't do a really good job of like saying they're so in love. They have such a wonderful mm-hmm. relationship. And That's that, right. yep. and that in, uh, it, it seeds this doubt of what's going to happen when Thomas finds Maria again. Did she leave on purpose? Is he going to find her a changed woman and their marriage is going to fall apart? Uh, you know, is... Or is she is she in trouble? Yeah, there, there are so many options about this because we don't know what their relationship really was like from the start. And Thomas is sort of oblivious. He He's not socially amazing, right? And... Maria, on the other hand, clearly is, it, just in those brief moments, she's teasing and adventurous and... Fun and he's yeah, boring. In, yeah, in ways that he's not. And so that provides the possibility of maybe she resents her husband because he's not playing along with what she wants. You know, She tries to tease him and flirt with him and things but like that. That and, doesn't make sense with the flashbacks. Off. I'm getting there. Okay, okay. The flashbacks, as we go, start providing context and start adding more information and help help me as, as a reader progress through this narrative tension. And it helps build and branch off and explore different avenues of tension. Where now, halfway through the book, I'm like, okay, she really did love him. They, they clearly, uh, you know, this wasn't some mistake where she got knocked up or something because that is implied they had a very rushed marriage because she got pregnant mm-hmm. um there is one line of like she would tell mrs beck she told he her, gave her me cousin. a gift or yeah yeah her cousin who she works with yeah uh, she's like he he gave me a gift and she's like i don't think you should think of that as a gift and it's not stated outright that this gift is a baby but that's the implication yes and and so it's like, okay, but so we know she was pregnant before the marriage. Yes. And they rushed through this, but we haven't heard anything about her being pregnant now. Did something happen? Like, and so to me, there's, there's now narrative tension introduced in the flashback story. Um, and I really hope he continues exploring it. The early flashbacks, I wasn't getting that. They felt more like, I'm going to explore this theme or this emotion or this, like, whatever yeah, yeah. that is going to become relevant to what Thomas is doing in the tower right now. And as the book has gone on and we've reached more like the 50% point, uh, he is starting to, like, really get into some meat in the flashbacks. And I like that a lot more because instead of having them kind of retreading the same ground that the epigraphs already do, it's adding a new layer to the story. And I needed that earlier. Hmm. So I I like how he paced the flashbacks in that sense. Um, I would have not liked it as much if we just got an info dump of all this history and relationship. No, no, I don't want an but, info dump. But give it to me in a time where I'll still care. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it really sounds like your biggest issue is that you did not connect with the main character. At all. And I and I would have connected with her. 
Well, yeah, she is definitely a lot like you. Like, I just think about our honeymoon. Where you constantly wanted to go off and do adventures and things and activities. And I wanted to relax by the pool with a book. Like <laughs> The ocean, Drew. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that was very much on my mind reading the opening chapters of this where she she is clearly the one who wants to be more adventurous and he is the more reserved like homebody kind of person and and that's part of why i enjoy thomas semlin as a a main character i'm not saying i think i'm a lot like him but i am like him in some ways thank goodness you're not (laughs) Uh, I'm like him in some ways. Some of his thought processes and attitudes for sure are like, yeah, I sympathize with him. Like there was one moment um, are we getting into in the him? parlor. Uh, almost, almost. Okay. Um, there's one moment in the parlor where he says he wanted to scream. And I stopped and I made it on. I said, same, this would be my nightmare. Like these just, the combination of the omnipresent press of crowds on top of being forced to act in a play against my will, <laughs> like, absolutely not. So, because of that, I didn't, like, need the flashbacks or the epigraphs to pull me along in the story early on. Um, I hope that when I get to the end of this book and I can look back on the full structure of the flashbacks in relation to the chapters that I will say, yes, that was a good choice to do those flashbacks. I'm still kind of waffling on it right now. I think where we are, he definitely didn't need to do all the flashbacks that he did. And, uh, at least in the manner he did, they didn't need to be as long. He could have fitted some of those memories just into Thomas's narration. Actually, I can't even say Thomas because I think this is an omniscient narrator. Um, the He could have just fit that information in smaller chunks seamlessly with the current, uh, the current timeline narrative. And, and then maybe a couple of important scenes like the kites or the piano when presumably she got pregnant. Yeah, I definitely assume that. Um, Maybe those you can say, all right, I'm going to take the time to put in a page break here and give you a flashback scene. But... What about the guidebook? I like the guidebook. The the epigraphs are great. Yeah, the epigraphs are good. Um, You think it sets things up nicely? Yeah, I mean, I I think it works really well. Maybe this can be our, our, like, transfer into character with Thomas. It works well to set up Thomas's expectations. Yes. Yes. If yes. you're reading, and we're only getting, you know, these little snippets, but if you're just reading the guidebook, you can see how Thomas would build it up in his head to become this symbol that it is not in reality. But he. Or how he would interpret the guidebook. Whereas, yeah. like, once we see it, we're like, oh, this is what yeah, you meant. When you read the guidebook things, 18 chapters into the book, you're now reading them with a cynical eye. Yes. And, 
and that that is just not the case at all for Thomas. He is not a cynical person by nature. Right. So, uh, but yeah, like, I, I, it's so fascinating to me that you said, like, straight off that you were reading the story of the tower through the guidebooks more than, like, through the perspective of the guidebooks more than the perspective of Thomas, the main character. Well, I see, I see forces moving us here, and I see him through this guidebook. Oh, you think there's a grand conspiracy going on? Yeah, I don't know if it's if there are multiple or if there's one. Do you think there's a, a conspiracy specifically concerning Thomas Semlin and Maria? I don't think anybody cares who they catch in these nets. Okay. Um. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I there are definitely like conspiracies occurring in the yes, tower. Yes, but they're, is there a grand overarching? Yeah, like, maybe. I don't think there was some like deliberate plot set in motion to separate Thomas and Maria. No, yeah. no, no, no. Um, they're not important. Oh enough. man, this actually just reminded me of how supremely unsettling the chap book that he bought off of the clerk. Oh. <laughs> about like how to sex traffic women oh my gosh uh I in that, that sense like i think i sped that up uh for sure bancroft wrote that to make you think and and worry oh my gosh maria is a prime candidate yes i did for worry. all of this yes you know, uh, I'm not, I, I don't think she is currently dealing with that. Um, otherwise I, there would have been something different with Ogier, her interactions with him. What do you mean? She's, she's posing for him and half the time it's with not all of her clothes <coughs> on. Yeah. Uh, because she's desperate for money. Yeah. Is she doing that with multiple sources? Uh, I I don't think so. I think how desperate for money. Is I she? think this is her. Uh, I don't think this is her being forced into sex work. I think this is her doing what she thinks she has to do to reunite with Thomas. Um, we don't know. Maybe the maybe the tower got her. Uh, there there was the only thing that made her not a good candidate for what was in that book is that it specifically recommends staying away from women who are married. Like, don't try to pull, yeah, true. pull women away from husbands. Um, you, If you can get them, like, you know, whatever, on, on their own in, in states of distress, over time you can get them to forget their families, but, but it does call out that. Gross. Um, yeah, extremely gross. <laughs> so... The the whole dynamic between Thomas and Maria fascinates me. Um, I made a comment to you earlier this evening when I was reading about how Bancroft was really nailing the emotional beats to get me interested in the book. <sighs> um, and it's because of that. Like, I, I am in a lot of ways a romantic. I don't like the idea of marriages falling apart um or or you know strong romantic relationships failing and he is really stringing me along with 
hints that that could be what's happening here. Uh, like, I, I think it would be absolutely tragic for, you know, this man who is socially oblivious in some ways to have unwittingly planted the seeds to ruin his own marriage because he didn't understand the, fully understand the personality of his wife. Mm. Um, hmm. I, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he is a bore and <laughs> he ostracized his own community they all see him as unnecessary pain because he is the educator of their children. We read this so differently. This is hilarious. <laughs> and he got lucky that this this woman who everybody in the town loves gave him a shot. And for some reason that I haven't figured out, she decided to marry him. No, I do not well, understand. Well, I think we see the... He got lucky. At the very least, the beginnings of it, that he may be, you know, with your uh, description, a bore. Um, I don't think he ostracized the town. He was he, an elite. He may be... And he treated them like they were not. See, I, I did not read it that way. Uh, I I thought the one chapter where he talks about how he goes around like dropping little tidbits of information all the time, annoyed. even though it's not helpful. Yeah, they're annoyed, but it's like an endearing annoyance. Um, no, nobody, nobody's. Yeah, that I read that very differently from you. Anyway, the point of Maria, like he is good at gestures, and because he's not good at expressing his emotions, when he does, it's extremely meaningful to her. I like I said, I go back to the kite scene and the piano scene. And how important those were. That was a very, very nice, sweet gesture with the piano. And the kite. Like, I, I loved, you know, how it sets this whole thing up of, like, look at what a social oddball he is. That he's doing this frivolous thing and has been his whole life. And then he turns it into a deeply meaningful gesture and proposal by making her her own kite and bringing her out to teach her how to fly it. And she gets to have her sense of adventure sparked by that. Where she's having a great time, like, cursing at the kite and, and like, you know, uh, like, trying to talk to it, trying to control the kite to do what she wants it to. And... And then, like, goes to climb a tree because she gets tangled in the tree... And like, so like there, there's scenes like that, that show that on some level, Thomas does understand her, even though he may not be the best at expressing that understanding. And then again with the piano where we see selflessness from him. He, it's a, it's a quick thing. It's easy to miss it in the scene, but through a couple of lines of dialogue, Bancroft shows us that his couch was important to him, right? He's a reader, he's an intellectual, and his couch was his comfort spot 
where he settles. So I'll be honest. I see her as fun in any situation. The kite is his thing. Okay. And he brought her into it, and she's going to have a good time no matter what. I didn't see it as he was thinking only of her. No, I'm not saying he was thinking of only of her in that situation. I do think he was thinking only of her with the piano. Absolutely. Where he's like, I'm sacrificing an important symbol for myself to make you happy. Yeah, and I'm going to change my house and my life. She says, where's the couch? And he says, this is my couch. And he sits down on this rickety stool that almost breaks and upends them both on the floor. Um, uh, The kite thing I saw more as him being vulnerable to her. Like finding a way to express himself because he's not good at that. Um, I loved both of those scenes. Uh, When we get to the end of this book, I would not be surprised if one or both of them are in my three favorite scenes in the book. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't see bright days coming ahead. No, I do not either. (laughs) Uh, yeah. But uh, do you have more about Thomas and Maria, or do you want to talk about other characters? Hmm. Um. What do you think about John Taru? Taro? Taru? How do they pronounce it in the audiobook? It's a British accent. I think it's a Teru? Teru? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I've said all my feelings about both of them. Um, I'm not sure. Hmm. I do expect this relationship to last, I guess. I really hope. Like, I mean, there are because so many ways. Because what's the point of that... setting us up? Everything has been negative. Every floor is negative. You have one light at the end of the no, tunnel. There are if ways to do it. If you take that away, then I'm done. There are ways to do it that make it bittersweet, though. And I'm like, I'm sure I'm going to love it. Because I love bittersweet endings. No. But, like, I I already am thinking of possible endings to this whole thing that would still be happy in a way but would result in the relationship, the marriage between Thomas and Maria failing. No, don't like. I um, I don't want it to. I, I, I want them to have a successful, happy marriage going forward, but I just don't see a way in which this trip up the tower isn't going to dramatically change both of them. Of course uh, it is. Especially because Thomas... Uh, Thomas is actively changing. We are following him. And in his mind, she is not changing. In his mind, she is the same as she has ever been. Uh, And then we get the scene with the painting, with with Ogier, and her posing for nudes. And it is such a blow to him. And I'm curious to see how he reacts to that and how or if it changes his internal image of Maria going forward because well, I think he said his feelings were out of control he he didn't right. even I mean he broke down and wept 
Well, I mean, like there were 20 different feelings mm -hmm. rolled together and it wasn't just like one overarching, like anger at her for doing this oh, yeah, or yeah. like. So there, and it could be that he just like says, this is too much to deal with. I'm going to lock this away and I'm going to continue on with this assumption that she is the same person she has ever been. It would also be easy for him to say, she was forced into this by circumstance, and that's the only reason she did it. Uh, it is also possible that this is just a side of her he didn't know about. You know, there are I... so many ways Bancroft can take it and take their relationship as a result. Uh, but Thomas, for most of this, for three levels, has been thinking of Maria as a static symbol rather than a dynamic person who is undoubtedly dealing with her own crazy adventures and trials. Well, it's interesting because he does mention that she was a student mm -hmm. while he was teaching. Mm -hmm. So he's seen her change already. I mean, I don't know. It's tough to say that when like there, there's like physical change. Sure. But I, I don't know how, much I get the impression he like pays attention to or cares about the internal landscapes of his students. Mm, okay. I mean, he does, he does mention some personal things about one or two students. I remember one girl specifically was kind of a teacher's pet Yeah, and she mm -hmm. added extra details and he had like a little fondness. Yeah. But, but that's like typical teacher student stuff. It's not like, following the personality and attitude changes of like the core of who his students are, um, which is what I'm referring to with. Yeah. With I don't Maria think he cares here. I don't think he cares. Yeah. Um, and so, but he should have seen at the very least, she was a child in front of him. She became a woman and his love. Right. Yeah. But but he is in an extraordinary circumstance, and I think he's immature. I I think sure, he's, he's yeah. not going to see it because he's immature. Still, yeah, that's that's a way you can describe it. Yeah, after I mean, all we the are things. we are halfway through book one of a series. He is he he has a lot of growing still still to do as a person, as a character. Yeah, and I'm not engaged with. Oh, I am. His growing. I so am. Um. <laughs> But yeah, let's let's move on. Let's let's talk about some other characters. Uh, Do you want to start with Adam at the very bottom? I don't even really have much more to say about him other than, you know, what I said earlier where I was like, I didn't see that dodging of expectation coming. I thought there was going to be a more, like, a clearer allegorical aspect to him with that name and where he appears in the story. Uh especially when you think about the the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible and how Eve is the one who messes up and betrays trust by sinning, right? By disobeying the orders of God. And here Adam is the one who immediately breaks that trust and sins. Well, we don't know about his sister. We don't. Voletta? Yeah. Which that was also like I highlighted her name because that was not a name I was expecting. 
I felt sympathy for him immediately when he, obviously, Thomas has just lost his wife, but Adam lost his sister, what, years ago? Mm-hmm. I had a lot of sympathy. And then and then we see the wall of messages. The lost and found. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was very sad. Like, I started in giving him sympathy, but also expecting the worst of him because he doesn't have a job and resources are scarce. Mm-hmm. So I expect him to be hustling. Mm. But I also felt for him. I think he's still, I got the impression that he was still looking for her. Because if it was a grift, always. Oh, yeah, I, I do think she exists don't... and he's looking for her. In fact, I fully expect that we are going to run into her further up the tower let me, somewhere. Let me finish. If he doesn't care, then why would he show him the wall? He's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and he's it... pragmatic and he's going to take advantage where he can take advantage. Right. And the wall, I think, is the first place where we kind of get an idea of the power of the tower. Yeah. For the first time. Yeah. Where, like, people get lost in reading the messages. And he feels himself get drawn in and almost become one of them immediately. Yeah. Um, I need to remember this point in when we get to miscellaneous. Because I do think there's a mystical element to the tower. Right down? But the... Yeah, the thing with Adam, I'm like, I don't expect Adam's going to show back up. I do expect we're going to meet Valletta at some point further up the tower. And she'll be another one of this series of people who come into Senlin's experience and then he moves past them. Well, she's above the parlor, then clearly she's doing better than her brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about John? John? John Taru. 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 Oh, they never call him John. That's why I keep getting oh. confused. Yeah. Um, Pompous. I honestly, I expected him to be a worse person than he ended up being. And I kind of think that the only reason he wasn't was because he saw that Thomas thought better of him than he thought of himself. And he wanted to live up to Hmm. that again. Yeah. Uh, I really hope we see Thomas again. Teru. Uh, Teru. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Yeah. I really hope we see him again. I'm scared for him. I... Part of this is because I remember the title of one of the later books. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you? No. Okay. Well, maybe if it'll help me engage more, I guess. It's called The Hod King. Cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if we're going to run into Taru further up the tower and we get, you know, a window into this whole secret society of the Hods and and he has been his gregarious, charismatic self and become a leader of the Hods or something like that. Hmm. But 
yeah, I I was like I was entertained by him the whole time, and then once we got the story, you know, about how he ended up stuck in the tower, uh, how he stuck himself in the tower. Well, I think that also brought back some humanity for him. I think yeah. he had been so lost in the revelry. It's kind of like, ooh, it's kind of like um, that, what's it called? One of the... Um, Brandon Sanderson in like the Revel is yeah, that right? the heart of the Revel. Yeah, the heart of the Revel. I That's... do not read it the same way. He was driven by shame. Yes, but I think he he enjoyed it too. I'm not sure he really did. Uh, I I and the reason I say that is because so much of what he was doing was driven by drink, and there was an undercurrent of anger, where he would. He, he didn't seem to ever relax when he was drinking and he would get angry and take it out on people. Yeah. And take it out on people around him. Um, and he's clearly already destroyed other relationships. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think this is a man who's powerfully driven by guilt and shame. Okay. I guess I see the culture of this level as the heart of the rebel. Um. I see. I actually see that more like the parlor, that it allows it allows you to. You don't get to live you, out with no, abandon. You in, have strict in the play. rules. In but the and strict, strict rules were were given. I don't know. I you could lose both eyes. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you yeah. don't if you don't do like the light the fires or you go through the wrong doors or whatever, but the no, you come back multiple times. Well, yeah. But, but I think the reason people come back multiple times is because this is a level that allows them to live out their innermost hedonistic desires. Oh, that, that hospital disturbed me. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the hospital really reminded me of A Wrinkle in Time. What? Uh, the, like, dystopian... I don't get that. ...world in... I mean, I know what you're referring yeah. to, but I don't get it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what detail it was, but I, I very much got that, like, kind of flashback to it. Honestly, that, I guess, the hospital made me feel the most that I felt. Oh, the the sex trafficking guidebook. No. Ugh. Nope. The, hosp- the hospital got me, and I was like, ooh, are we taking, are we taking this, this direction? Are we are we gonna go to like creepy and horror and mess with you? The potential is definitely there. Because I'll be more into it if, if they're gonna do that. Yeah, the potential is there. That but the, the idea of the helmet oh, that completely oh, traps in your screams oh, while it rips your me. eye out. Oh, it scared me. Yeah. But I I would keep reading. I like thriller horror. Yeah. Um Let's see. Do you have anything about Ogier or Edith that you want to talk about? Let's talk about Edith. Okay. Um, Do you... Okay. The general S. Mm, Let's start with how much is acting. Oh, I don't think... uh, We don't know for sure. No, we don't. But I, I do think she is telling the truth of her story and... Um... I don't see a narrative purpose in having her lie because I don't see her ever coming back into the story. 
Or if she does, it's going to be in sort of like an end series thing where everybody he's no, no. he's encountered comes back into no, play. No, I do see a narrative purpose. Like Thomas is waking up to the fact that everybody's lying to him. But he's already learned that lesson. I don't know if he has. I, he keeps trusting. No, but the entire time in the baths, he was not trusting. He was like, I I put myself in this position by like one desperate outburst. And now like he tried to lie. He tried to not trust Ogier, but Ogier outmaneuvered him and forced him to just be like, all right, well, I have to tell the truth now. No, and he's weak is how I see that. I, I don't, I would not describe that as weak. Um, he's you, desperate. He doesn't have to show his emotions. I don't think he's an emotionless automaton. Like, he, he can't, he doesn't have this, like, you perfectly You can feel strict. them, but you don't have to show them, especially when it's to your detriment. When you're under this sort of pressure in this extreme a circumstance, like, you don't have the same control. Like, if, if we went on a, a vacation together and I lost you in a crowd and I spent a month looking for you, slowly running out of money... I am every, every nerve in my body would be frayed. I would have no concept of self-composure. Like if it's do or die <laughs> and, and die is me showing my emotions and becoming vulnerable and having somebody take advantage of me, then I will hide them. I don't care what I'm feeling. I, I don't think this was a die situation. It he was doesn't a, know that he's already destitute. He's already desperate. Like he's basically out of money. He knows, like, like, he even talks about the next time he sees Taru, he's going to have to ask for a loan. By the way, uh, when Taru, like, caused the scene as a hot, I think he slipped money into. Because uh, he, 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 he planted something on Thomas. He slipped his hand into Thomas's jacket. I, I guess, I think I was thinking a note. Now I don't remember, but... I I, I think it was money, but yeah. I don't know. Huh. Okay. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but he's been warned already. Mm-hmm. And he's aware. I mean, he talks about how his wariness is verging on paranoia at this point. Where he, he, he doesn't believe even basic things other people are telling him. And he shouldn't. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, so... I just find it really fascinating that that Bancroft has decided to have this kind of parade of temporary sidekicks for him, rather than sticking a character or two to his side and allowing them to grow with Thomas across the course of the series. Um, yeah, but it's also a problem because... I don't have anybody to get attached to or care about. <laughs> That's a you problem, not a book problem. I don't know. I blame the author. Like, why? Well, clearly it's working for me. Yeah, you're weird. <laughs> yeah, you can't assign subjective, I like this character, I don't like this character, as a failing on the author's part. I don't... Okay, I would have been attached to Maria if we had more. 
with her. Or more... I mean, we are slowly getting more. I also am very but curious to a, see... It was too late. Hmm. I was already like, whatever. I guess... You know, like, that's why I stopped reading. <laughs> like, I, I kept going for a little while after they got separated because I was like, I was interested in her. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see her again. And I cared about him finding her so she wasn't alone. Well, yeah, your problem is that you don't connect with the main character of the story. Yeah, and what, like, what do I have? The setting? The world? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all debauchery. You're not interested in the mysteries of the tower? It's how many ways can I show human debauchery? Oh, I, I, I think that's reductive. I think there's a lot more depth to it than just that. Everybody's, I mean, we're already starting to get hints of political rivalries and alliances. Fallen. and Everybody's fallen. There, we've had references to the House of Pell and uh, what was the A whatever the house that made his boots that Kristoff was like, are you working for them? Yes. And then yes. as he's leaving, he's like, by the way, if you decide you do work for them, put in a good word for me. I don't know who they are. I don't know what their motives are. You're not supposed to. It's that a, would be interesting. It, it's supposed to be a tease of like, you will find this out if you keep reading. That's how like, that's how this stuff works. You can't just info dump everything and be like, all right, here's the whole world. Hope you like this. Like, I don't have any strings to hold on to if I don't know anything about them. The, the idea of getting to know is the string. Like, that's no. that's how mysteries work. No. Yes. It's not, like, their name, their name and the fact that they are a party is not interesting enough. And you liked A Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> This is like what George R. R. Martin does. Yeah, but like, I knew about them. Not really. Okay, well, I had, okay, I had one string from page one. Like, you hey. get John Aaron's name on, like, page ten, True. and then you don't hear about the Aarons again for a book. Doesn't matter. Like, let me let me finish. One string from page one. The others. The others. Yeah. Done. That You got me. You got me. Yeah. It I just mean, took a very long I mean, time. For and then, me... For me, that string, there were multiple strings. I liked Thomas. I'm intrigued by the idea of this tower. Are there mystical things? Maybe this is the, the transition into more miscellaneous stuff. Like, it's tough to tell. And this is another similarity with the Book of the New Sun. It's tough to tell if there is something mechanical, scientific going on. Or if there is actually supernatural phenomenon occurring when you, for instance, step into the bath, into the tower, the fountains, or, or when you're reading the notes at the lost and found, because there is a possibility there, there's certainly some effect on people that people are willing to try to get back into the parlor again, after being branded and having an eye gouged out. Like there, that's, that is extreme level of like, desperation, you know. and so, you know, and, and enough lassitude present in the fountains that people drown, you know, they just like, it's a common enough thing that the guidebook says, 
bring a friend, or if you don't have one, make a friend so that somebody's there to make sure you don't drown by falling asleep. Like there, so I, to me, the world has enough mystery and, and weight to it that even if I didn't love Thomas, I would still be interested in reading on, but I do happen to like Thomas. So now I have two things I'm excited about, you know, and as we've gone up the tower, he adds more layers and more hints of like, there's really cool stuff still to come. So yes, for me, Bancroft's doing a great job of pulling me along. Yes, there's a mystical element, clearly. And there's a technology element. I'm not sure how much is technology and how much is magic. Yeah, like you have the the clockwork spider on the outside of the tower. That's interesting. That apparently has like AI or something that it works by itself. Yes. You know. And, And they're still building the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And... I, I think a lot of the points of things are to provide resources for the building of the top, or at least to keep mm. it going. Like you must keep your fire running. You must. Oh yeah, that's got to be. A... You must keep spinning, keep biking. You must keep powering. Oh, I didn't get that impression from the bike. I did. Mm. Well, the big one, the big one, definitely. And then there, you know, there are miniature ones. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I do think the the fires are providing some kind of energy or benefit. It's too random. Yeah. Like, Otherwise. And and it's too strict. Yes. So. Um. Yeah. I'm not convinced that she wasn't acting all the way th- through. I'm not convinced we knew Edith. It just, what made me question it was we clearly know that that agent from the get-go, the caseworker, was another actor. Seth Anon. Yeah, that he's like, he thinks he's being reviewed by somebody further up the tower and that there's like layers to the acting in the parlor. But I knew he was an actor from the time he comes on screen. Because Thomas describes him as awkward and nervous. Oh, I just saw that initially as a, you know, he's a young functionary who's nervous about his job. No. Nope. And, and he, like, wants to make sure he does the right thing. No, I knew he was an actor. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, how far is she acting? The only person we can be sure about is Thomas. Yeah. And honestly, I thought he was going to get branded because he did break the rules. He did? Yeah. What, what rule did he break? He went through a door that wasn't I. When did he do that? Following her as they're running. No, the those were the only doors that had the letters on them were the exits. The doors in the house. The doors in had the letters. And then the doors back to their like private rooms also have the no. letters. Yeah. No. She tried to bring him back into her room. She did bring him back into her room. And it wasn't an eye. It didn't have a letter. It did. The interior doors didn't have letters. He went through a door. Without a letter. There was no point in this story that said, like, if he had gone through a door with a letter, the in the narration it would have said, oh, there was an A on the door. He but did. we were it No, did. it did not. It definitely did not. Yes. No. And then he goes through, the, like, to see all the other Isaacs. 
that's when they leave through his own eye door to get out. Because that's where all the Isaacs are. And that's why she got in trouble. She went out a door that wasn't her letter. I thought when they were hiding, they went through a door. No. And I was like, okay, well, he's he's branded too. I don't understand why he gets off easy. She got in trouble, though, for the fire. She got in trouble for two things. She got in trouble for going through the wrong door. And Thomas is like, that's ridiculous. We were about to get murdered. We had to do it to save our lives. And he's like, well, maybe there could have been leeway for that. But she also didn't take care of the fires. But that was also part of his lines, maybe. This other actor. How does he know as an actor that she didn't take care of her fire? He didn't know that they were being watched everywhere. Oh, I think you're reading something very different into this. I think there are layers of this where the people who are watching it also are acting. They're acting out a different play. They're acting out like they have been told you have to watch these plays. You have to perform these roles. Sure, but he's not part of all of it. No, but there's clearly a giant functional system of bureaucracy and the spies are part of it. So they reviewed the case. Like them hanging out in the cage was the clerks and stuff going to the spies who watched their play and coming back and being like, yes, the spies reported she wasn't doing her fires. That's why it took a day of them hanging out there because they had to go find the right people. Possible. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I, we do, haven't talked we, about Odier. <sighs> okay. We are already running kind of long on this. <laughs> okay, so... Hmm. How did you feel about him? I don't like him. Our intro to him was him being bullied. And then... Thomas, like, helping him. I don't like him. Um, the... The scene of him manipulating Thomas... I just was like, no, I don't like this guy. And then on top of that... Everybody manipulates. Doesn't mean it's right. Right, and that's why I'm not... The... But on top of that, um, I very much get the impression that he's taking advantage of women with the nudes. Probably. I mean, they're all, like I said, debauchery, debauchery, debauchery. So, uh, yeah, I don't like him. I, I don't know. Uh, some of, so there have been four people who have come into Thomas's life in significant ways so far. And Adam and Ogier are the two that I did not get good first impressions of. I think Ogier is a fallen person um, who has moments where he remembers that he has a conscience. We'll see. Like, we left off on this cliffhanger where, like, even though Thomas has followed through on his end of the bargain, Ogier is delaying following through on his end. And I'm still not convinced, once I start reading Chapter 11 of Part 2, that he's going to give him the information that he's supposed to. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So... 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think I have very much else to... Miscellaneous? Yeah. Um, like, I had a couple of lines that I highlighted that I just really enjoyed. Um, the tower is only as tall as the man that climbs it. I thought that was a really good line. Um, was that in one of the... Uh, I believe that was a Taru line. Oh. Oh, yeah, this is it. Um... I'm suspicious of people who are certain. I've known men who say that, without a shadow of a doubt, the tower contains 46 ringdoms. They'd start fistfights over this undeniable fact. And I have also met seemingly sincere airmen who swore the tower had only 32 ringdoms. Taru tapped his nose. I know the truth. The tower is only as tall as the man that climbs it. I like that. That's good. He has moments. Yeah. Um, There are a couple just really nice uh descriptions again in the in that same scene with senlin and taru their plates were cleared a bottle of port was brought and they turned their chairs to face the dark water that flashed like cracked onyx like that's a very nice description mm. there was also a scene a moment in uh in the solarium i think it's the second day thomas goes to the solarium to get the painting and there's a description of like what's going on you know like the sun is changing in the sky and Kristoff is pacing around the room and the girl hesitated on the edge of the water i like how he he uses two things that are actually dynamic and then one thing that's static and makes it dynamic that was a really nice touch like that's the reason that I I like his prose. I like his style as a writer. Um, he finds interesting and unexpected ways to describe things. I'm going to try to pay more attention and, and enjoy those things. Yeah. Um, let's see if I have anything else highlighted. I think I had another one. Um, oh, yeah. Um early on when they're still in the train uh, they're seeing the crowds and like the airship flies like really really low and and Somebody one of the guys on. like yeah um, and it's the scene seemed almost comical from the ground but Senlin's stomach churned when he thought of how the youth must feel flying on the strength of his grip high over the sprawling mob indeed the entire brief scene had been so bizarre that he decided to simply put it out of his mind. Oh. And I was like, that is a great bit of characterization. I I just got a haunting flashback of real life. People hanging on to Oh, geez. airplanes that are taking off in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I can see can see why he would try to put it out of his mind yeah <laughs> oof but, but yeah so that's that's about all i have for discussion on the book itself um do you have any last thoughts for the first half i'm trying to be as into it as you are you don't have to be as into it as i am i'm trying to enjoy it <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm hoping there's going to be something. I, I hope so, too. Um, 
because this is definitely I see again why <laughs> I stopped there were better books at the time and hmm. podcasts that I could listen to instead it's it's funny but this is also why I really like you know having this podcast and and even outside of the podcast having these conversations with you because while we do like a lot of the same books our tastes are not the same and sometimes we like them for different reasons yeah and sometimes we like things for different reasons <laughs> um you know because i am already this book you know that we're we're three days into 2023 and this book is already lining up to be better than any new book that I read last year. What? Yeah. What? Like right now, right now it's main you competition. You mean for the podcast? Cause I. No, just in, in general. I didn't, no. I was really no. disappointed. I don't buy that. Mm-mm. Uh, everybody uh, listening we're going to have a special celebration of 200 episodes episode. uh, And that will involve me talking about my reading in 2022. And uh, I was really disappointed overall. Like I just didn't, uh, I I did a lot of rereading, which is generally like fine. But in terms of new books that I read in 2022, Piranesi is probably the best book I read that year. Either that or Wicked Bronze Ambition by Garrett P.I. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I was yeah, going to say. Yeah, like Piranesi I really enjoyed, but there were things in it that disappointed me and kept it from being like a really special book in the way that A Desolation Called Peace or City of Stairs or The Library at Mount Char have been in, in past years. Like 2022 was the first year in a long time that I didn't read something new that just blew me away. And I feel like your criticism of Piranesi is a bit subjective. Oh, of course it is. But that's the thing is like, for a book to really blow me away, it's going to be subjective. It has to hit the right notes with me. And while Piranesi hits some of the right notes, I felt like, again, you can go back and listen to our Piranesi episode for the full thing, but I felt like it got a little off track and then rediscovered the path. So I still really enjoyed the book, but this book so far has not gone off track. I've just enjoyed it more and more the more I've read. What about Thousand Doors of January and, and uh, 10, Lady 000, Trent? Uh, I did not le- read Lady Trent in 2022. I read A Natural History of Dragons uh, July 2021 before Jordan Con. What? Yeah, she was the guest of honor at Jordan Con. I could have read this and enjoyed it years ago. <laughs> the book's been on our shelf. I didn't know it was so good. Yeah. Um, uh, I did read... Wait, 10,000 Doors of January was was last year. Yeah, it was 2022. Huh. I did. Huh. Yeah. There um, go. I don't know if I liked it more than Piranesi. That's also up there, though. Yeah. I think it was just a little too simplistic for what I wanted. Okay. Um, I don't know. Anyway, I am loving Senlin Ascends so far. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, and I hope you can find things to at least enjoy reading and want to read on because... Well, if we have more hospitals... I'm going to I'm gonna read on, and if you don't want to, then I have to find a new guest for the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, you know I'd do it. Just be critical. 
That's true. <laughs> and sometimes that's, you know, you need that. Our Dresden Files episodes, even though I did not enjoy a lot of those books, I think our episodes are some of the best episodes we've done because of those conversations and the the differences in opinion and like Rob being critical of different things from me and, and that provided really just dynamic and fun conversations. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't want to make you foresee to read a book that you're hating, you know? <laughs> it's been a while since I did that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I think with that, we can head into the final draft. Okay. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Predictions. Oh, predictions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, so I'm going to lead off with one that isn't so much a prediction as a... I'm really fascinated by the fact that I don't have a prediction on this. Um, and it's part of why I'm enjoying it so much. I haven't decided yet whether I think he's going to reunite with Maria in this book or not. I 100% think he is. Because like, I don't know what we're going to keep, how we can keep searching for another however many books. Yeah, three or four for books. For her. Yeah. Um, like, at some point, he's going to find something that catches him. Yeah, like, I I see two options for the story. One is we continue chasing Maria all the way up the tower. No, please no. Or he finds Maria, but either the train tickets have expired or he's robbed again or loses them somehow and they don't have a way back. And so they have to continue up the tower searching for a way out together. Um, I kind of like, I don't know what I want and that's part of why I don't have an actual prediction on it. I want something else to be the, the, the mission. I want it not to be finding her anymore. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Or at the very least, maybe he gives us her perspective. That would make it interesting. So that is a thought that has crossed my mind multiple times. I am operating under the assumption that this whole series is Thomas Sentlin. Uh, and, and I've been like... I've wondered whether Josiah Bancroft is ever going to go back and write Maria's story or something like that. But I'm, I could be wrong. Maybe one of the next books is Maria's story. And, you know, maybe they reunite at the end of this book and next book is her story. And then the third book is them figuring out an adventure together or something like that. I don't know. We also don't have, we don't have a whole lot of interaction between the floors. I think that is definitely coming. Uh, yes. That that is like I was talking earlier. To. The like the the houses. We have hints finally. Yeah. But the, I expect it. There's there's for sure some. Ooh ooh! I have ringdom idea. politics coming. So the what should we call them? The attendants who lead you into the parlor. Yeah. Are they robots? Oh, I didn't think of that. They are described as being pretty emotionless. Man, 
I, I should have thought of that, especially given the number of uh, Gene Wolfe, Book of the New Sun comparisons that I've heard. Or, or are they products of the tower? See, that is more like when we were talking about the uh, An- Anon Seth, Seth or whatever his name was, the guy who revealed himself as an actor because mm-hmm. he thinks Senlin is like a, a you know, uh, I think he is born and raised in the tower and that the parlor has a, a game for visitors to act and a deeper game and a deeper game of residents who are acting and actually performing jobs. Mm. And, and he is one of those actors because there's, he clearly has knowledge of like performance reviews in a way that the other actors who are visiting coming up in did not like nobody that Thomas interacted with had any mention of like, we're going to get rated on our performances. It's just, you do your performance. Um, Thomas is not ever told about anything like that. And there's a meanwhile, lot Thomas doesn't know. Meanwhile, this guy, just like he's nervous all the time because of this performance review. And so I think there's like, there's literally another level to the game and to the acting. And it is like you said, there, there are actors who are residents of the tower. I mean, we also have a resident, a couple other minor interactions that we get. Oh, the springtime. Yeah. Mm. Did you like that description of spring? I did. I knew and then you would. and then I got I a chuckle would. out of where like he he was like waxing rhapsodic and then ran out of ideas and then had to scramble to describe the scent and he was like it's like a room full of ladies and one wet dog. <laughs> <laughs> and and that that right there was such a a true experience as a writer. Where I'm like, there have been times I've been writing a story and I get in the groove and I'm just going and I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then I hit a point toward the end of the paragraph and and I just run out of creative juice and I have to end with some like lame metaphor or or something to finish the idea and move on. But I'm like, man, that sucked after I just had that that great run, you know. Uh, so. Well, there's a name for fresh rain. And Petricor. Yeah, and Senlin's such a nerd that I expected him to know it. Yeah. I expected him to just use that word, but at the same time, like, you can't translate that to somebody who doesn't know what it is. It's funny you bring that up because I have this wonderful candle right here uh, from Frostbeard Studio. If you're a book nerd and you like candles, check out Frostbeard Studio. Um, they're awesome, and they have nerd and book themed things this one is called high storm and one of the scents in this is petrichor and also petrichor is not for you correct uh but yeah do we have any other uh oh i just final sorry. thoughts what was his name christoph christoph the guard yeah mm-hmm. i could not help but wonder he used to be on one of the airships. 
he was on the uh think it what was it the Arathus or something like that yeah the flagship he was on the yes, ship yes yes they're for the elite how does he end up here he's clearly bored now oh um that wasn't an airship for the elite that was a military airship that's the flagship of the commissioner yes he was just like a he's a, an elite an airman yeah. He's part of the thing. Like, he didn't get on that ship because he's some elite guy. He no, got on the ship no, no, because no. he's a soldier. I'm saying the airships are special. You don't just get on one. But that's been made clear to us. I, I, we're talking about two different kinds of airships. This is a military ship that he was just like a conscripted soldier and was assigned that job. He had, he had a special position. Mm, no, not really. Just being on the airship is a special position. I did not get that impression. I was excited. Like for him, every time he did something good, when he got promoted, he got put in worse positions. Dang it, I can't, I don't remember what the name of the ship was. Anyway, go on. He was one of the interesting characters. I do wonder if we'll see him again because he's like actively trying to betray the commissioner. I mean, he's he's messing around because he's bored, but he's not taken. He doesn't feel like he's taken by the tower. Like no. everybody else is. Yeah. So he's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like he's trying to get involved in this like political conflict. And I and I kind of saw the commissioner as Sad little man. Hmm. Yeah. You sneeze because somebody has a scent on. Sad is not the word I would have used. Sad Obnoxious. Okay. I guess you should hear, you should hear in the audio, his voice hmm. is like high pitched and nasally. Yeah. It's described that way. And annoying. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so I guess. <sighs> hmm. I see him as, yeah, sad little man. Okay. Who's lucky to have a position. See, sad to me is like, you have pity for him. I have no pity for him. He's pathetic. He's an awful human being. He's and pathetic. And he deserves every discomfort and unhappiness that he gets. Yeah, but to me it was like... He's not even his own, he doesn't even have true agency. Doesn't he? No. Why don't you think he has agency? He's doing, he at one point says, well, he broke the rules. Like, he's doing things because... He's the commissioner, he sets the rules. Did he? Yeah, he, he has an army and he runs the whole ringdom. Like, he's the guy in charge. He's not on the top floor. But each ringdom is its own thing. Somebody's pulling his strings. I don't think there's been any indication in the story of that. I think there's... We'll see. I, I think there got to be bigger fish. I think the people on higher in higher ringdoms don't care.
care about what's going on in the lower ringdoms. And you get these little fiefdoms of like one guy is a thug and gets an army together and now he rules. And that's what's going on with the commissioner. He found some mystical artifact or whatever it is that gives him his power because otherwise he can't even... No, I don't think it's an artifact. I think it's purely money. Um, no. Like, he gets he gets It's that... money and fear. His veins turn red? Yeah. Uh, oh, the, the red hand? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's some magic, but that, that plays into the fear. Rips somebody's head off? Correct. That plays into the fear. That's mystical. He set up, he put the rules in place, he runs the whole thing. Because he got lucky, he found something. Otherwise, he's just a sad... Sorry. I don't I don't have any sympathy for him. No, no. <laughs> but we really do need to wrap up this episode. We're over an hour and a half at this point, and it's after midnight on a work day. Um <laughs> let's move into the final draft. Lauren, what are you drinking? So I'm drinking uh I don't know why they're calling it cloudy. I think they're trying to be unique. It's a New England IPA. It's a hazy. Uh, it's got Citro, Mosaic, Eldorado. That's pretty standard for hazy IPA. Uh, double dry hopped. And this is a brewery I used to work for called Wiley Roots. Yeah. And mm. I picked it because the visual of like the drunken bicycle Ferris wheel thing was so very clear in my mind. Yeah. And, and also, so, so this one, it, the can has like very clear gears on a clock. Yeah. Moving. It's called perpetual movement. Yeah. That's and I, very good. I also think of, so I think of the drunks who are stuck on that forever beer i think of just the whole tower and everything the whole is tower. this just seething mass of perpetual movement yeah you have all these clockwork mechanisms the cat is going crazy speaking of perpetual movement uh <laughs> yeah you're either consumed by it or you have to keep going yeah yeah exactly um for myself i am also drinking a hazy double ipa this is from weldworks brewing company where Lauren currently works. Yes. <laughs> uh, 8.2%. Oh, does this list hops? We does don't do not. that anymore. Okay. Um, I can look it up, but. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but uh, I, I did taste perpetual movement and I've tasted this one and I like this one more. Oh. Um, by a lot, actually. Actually, what? Okay. So my <laughs> ABV was. Did we not put it on the can? Oh, 6.8. 6.8. Oh, so this is higher. Interesting. This does feel hot. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Anyway, uh, this one also is inspired by the tower as an entity and specifically the basement and the tunnel into the basement. This beer is called Evil Haze Factory. So... Yeah. You should see the artwork if you guys get a chance. Yeah. Or, or maybe, Drew, you post it. 
Oh, uh, actually doing something with our Instagram other than posting links to the new episodes. Yeah. What a novel idea. <laughs> See if I can find the, the bandwidth and energy to actually do that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. It has been episode 200. Crazy. Oh, 200 episodes of Inking Out Loud. Uh, next up, we are going to be doing the second half of Send Lena Sends. Uh, that will be the next regular Sunday episode. Sometime between now and then, there will be that bonus episode that I mentioned earlier on celebrating 200. Uh, we got some fun stuff going on with that. So uh, for sure, tune in. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but there there's some really cool... Really cool stuff on that episode. As always, if you want to support Aching Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Aching Out Loud. Uh, you know, that that support is really what has allowed me to keep this thing going, especially uh, in Rob's absence. Um, it's been a lot. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate all of that support over there. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Laura McCaffrey. Don't drink alone. Don't drink alone. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.